Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Sophie Hanna. Sophie Hanna is a best-selling novelist who, among other psychological thrillers, has written further adventures of Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. Although these novels feature the beloved Belgian detective Poirot, her narrator is not Captain Hastings, but rather an original character, Inspector Edward Catchpool of Scotland Yard. Her latest novel, Closed Casket, begins when Lady Athelinda Playford makes an abrupt change to her will, cutting off her two children and leaving everything to an invalid who only has weeks to live. When an unexpected murder takes place, Poirot and Catchpool endeavored to identify the killer and uncover the bizarre motive. I was able to meet in person with Sophie in New York to talk about Closed Casket. Her first Poirot novel, The Monogram Murders, is available in paperback, and Closed Casket is currently available in hardcover. So we are here today with Sophie Hanna, author of Closed Casket. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. So uh, the first thing I want to talk about was... um, how this is a continuation of Agatha Christie. Um, it reads very much like Agatha Christie. You do that voice so well. What was that experience like for you, sort of developing that voice, trying to mimic her writing style? Um, well, it was quite interesting because I, I both was and wasn't trying to write like Agatha Christie. So obviously, you know, I was asked to write Christie continuation novels. So I knew that um, my Poirot novels would have to have enough in them that that Christie's novels had in them that would appeal to her readership and to fans of Poirot. Um, But that's a different thing from trying to write like her on a sentence-by-sentence level. So that was the thing I didn't do, and I very consciously didn't do that because I thought a writer's prose style is really like a fingerprint. You know, you can't copy somebody else's, and it felt sort of wrong to try. So what I tried to do was to write the best novels I could featuring Christie's brilliant detective Poirot and offering all the satisfactions that I as a Poirot novel fan thought books like that should have but not quite in Christie's exact sentence by sentence style and that was really why I decided to have my two Poirot novels narrated by a different character so Christie's Poirot novels are often narrated by Captain Hastings uh, whose Poirot is loyal but slightly dim sidekick Um, and Hastings is the narrator of every book that he's in. So I thought, well, I don't want to do Hastings' voice and get it wrong. So I created Inspector Edward Catchpole, who's a Scotland Yard policeman, and he is Poirot's sidekick for the purposes of my Poirot novels, and he is the narrator of both novels. And I thought, actually, that's quite a sensible way to approach the fact that inevitably some readers are going to think, well, you know, however Christie-ish this book is, it doesn't read exactly like an Agatha Christie, and there's now an authentic reason for that because it's a new character talking. So that was very much you trying to break away and make this your own thing in a way? Um, it wasn't, no, because it wasn't really trying to break away. It was just, I knew that some readers would, would think that, you know, there were certain almost unconscious aspects of Christie's writing 
that I would, again, unconsciously not do because I'm a different writer. So, for example, her sentences are incredibly simple and clear. She has an absolute brilliant clarity and simplicity throughout her, her novels. And my style is slightly more complicated. You know, I, I can't quite write in that absolutely simple way she does. I think my mind is a bit more convoluted. Um, so really, having a new narrator was a way of signalling to the readers this is a different voice. It's the same character, it's Poirot that we all know and love, and it's absolutely Agatha Christie's Poirot as well. I haven't changed him in any detail, but it's a new voice and he's being seen through the eyes of a different character. I also wanted Catchpole to be slightly a different kind of sidekick from Hastings, because Hastings, you know, I absolutely love Hastings. I think he's wonderful, but he never gets any less dim. <laughs> he, you know, there's never a there's never a book where he suddenly makes a really pertinent observation and cracks even one aspect of the case. Never. Um, he always helps Poirot by sort of running errands and then by saying something completely unconnected. You know, Hastings will say, "Oh, look, it started to rain," and Poirot will go, "Rain? <laughs> that word, Hastings, has made me think of the entire answer to the mystery." <laughs> and I thought, well, actually, if you have a sidekick for Poirot who works with him over and over again, surely that person would get a bit better. Their detective skills would surely improve even just slightly. Um, and so I like the idea of having Catchpole as not a stupid person, but actually someone who's reasonably intelligent and quite a good detective in a normal way in the course of his normal job. And suddenly in the monogram murders, my first Poirot novel, he finds himself working with Poirot who's a great genius, who can crack any case, however cryptic, and suddenly Catchpool, who thought he was a good detective until he met Poirot, is crippled by self-doubt and has a massive identity crisis. And then in Closed Casket, the second time Poirot and Catchpool were having to solve a mystery together, Catchpool's a bit better. He's bucked up a bit. He's stopped moping around. He's accepted that Poirot's cleverer than him, but he's also become a little bit better as a detective by having worked with Poirot once. And my idea, you know, when I wrote the monogram murders, I didn't know there was going to be another one. Um, at this point, I don't know whether there's going to be another one after this. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> I mean, I think we all hope there will, but nothing's been confirmed. But my idea was that Poirot and Catchpole would have a sort of mentor-mentee relationship where Catchpole gets a little bit better at detective work every time he works with Poirot. Which I think would happen, like if I got to work with Pyre, I'm sure I'd, you know, definitely get cleverer <laughs> quite quickly. I think so. Um, I think it's also really interesting because, you know, you mentioned that um, he's getting better in a lot of the, um, in a lot of the old Agatha Christie novels, and to an extent Sherlock Holmes too, um, the police Scotland Yard are always very much portrayed as kind of these bumbling idiots who don't really know what they're doing. Yeah, which is, exactly. And that's another another sort of convention of, of the genre. And actually, in Closed Casket, uh, the, the person whose grand country mansion everything takes place in, the murder takes place mm -hmm. in, is a writer called Lady Athelinda Playford, and she's the author of Mystery Stories for Children. And Catchpole thinks to himself very early on that he's got a bit of a... A, a grievance about these books of Lady Playfords because the police are always so stupid in them and the police always end up saying to this 10-year-old detective, oh, we'd never have solved this case without you. <laughs> uh, and so when he first arrives at the house, Catchpole, not knowing he's going to be called upon to solve a murder, 
He's hoping to get a chance to chat to Lady Playford and point out to her that actually the police aren't quite as dim as she seems to think <laughs> now, but then he never gets a chance to have that conversation because murder and intrigue take over. As they do in a novel. Do, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I want to talk to you a bit about um, those novels that she wrote. Um, because the way the characters kind of talk about them very nostalgically, you know, they grew up reading them, they have their favorites, they have their preferences to reading them. Was there any sort of, um, I guess, were you reflecting um, the Agatha Christie novels in that way? No. So um, the the whole of Lady Playford's, you know, her CV, as it were, you know, the books mm-hmm. she writes, she's very much not based on Agatha Christie. And that's why I made her a mystery writer for children. Her character is very different from everything we know of Christie's character. Christie was a very shy, decent, good person. Lady Playford is a bit of a mischievous, manipulative... I mean, I love her as a character. <laughs> oh, she's great. But she's not well-behaved and no, demure. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to sort of make clear that she wasn't based on Agatha. Um, and so I thought, in terms of the books she writes, she's really much more based on a famous English writer called Enid Blyton, who wrote many series of mystery books for children... She's not so well known over here, but in in England she's really famous. Um, And she wrote the Secret Seven series, which is about a a group of seven children who solve mysteries before the police do. Their parents occasionally pop in and bring them lemonade and biscuits, but, (laughs) you know, basically they're busy solving all these neighbourhood crimes. Um, So in terms of her CV, Lady Playford is based much more on Enid Blyton than Agatha Christie. There was, um, there was also a quote that um, it was early on in the book, which I loved, and I wanted to uh, mention it and see if you could expound on this a bit, you know, if this had any influence in um, the way you sort of construct yeah. a novel. Um, I think it was a, when you first introduce um, Catchpole in this book. Conceal and reveal. How appropriate that those two words should rhyme. They sound like opposites, and yet, as all good storytellers know, much can be revealed by the tiniest attempts at concealment. And new revelations often hide as much as they make plain. Yes, I, I mean really I think that a lot. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I think that's true, and but it's not something I'd thought of before I wrote that paragraph. And when I wrote that paragraph, I think it's the very beginning of chapter two. It's the beginning of Catchpole's narration in the book, and it just it just was there. It just appeared, and I thought actually that's true. I really like that observation, and so I put it in. Um, but, you know, when you think about it, that is how crime fiction operates. Um, every time you try and hide something, you reveal something else by the way you tried to hide the first thing. And there's no better way to hide something than with some kind of either false or distracting revelation. You know, and crime writers do it all the time. They say, oh, look over there. And this is happening over here, but don't look there. Look there. And so the reader will notice this other thing, but not give it much attention because their attention is being directed elsewhere so I think yeah that concept that concealing and revealing are always happening at the same time is one that's quite fundamental to mystery fiction so I'm curious as a mystery writer do you or does this vary for you do you generally come up with um, the solution and then kind of figure out how you got there or do you develop this mystery and then well, it's either, it's either it. one or the other. So for all of my books, I either start with what I think is a brilliant solution to a mystery, or I start with a really intriguing mystery that I can't at that moment think of the solution to. Um, one or the other. I never start with anything else. Uh, so Closed Casket, 
I had the idea for it. I was having a, an argument with my sister, not a fight, but like a, a debate, a heated <laughs> debate. And in order to win this argument, I made a particular point. And in making this point, I had the most amazing idea for a motive for murder. And I thought, this has never been done before. Or at least I hope it has. I then went <laughs> and Googled and checked. And fortunately, I couldn't find any, anyone who'd done it before. It was so simple. It was almost obvious as a motive for murder, and yet I was sure no one would guess it. Oh, I did. You didn't guess it. No. But you know what I mean? It's like it's yeah. such an obvious motive. It's yeah, so no, simple. I, then when you get to it, you're like, of course. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just loved this idea. Not only did I love it, I thought I will never have an idea that simple again. Because there just aren't that many. So Agatha Christie had a couple. She had Murder on the Orient Express. You know, I won't say what it is because it would be a spoiler, but you could summarise the solution to that book in four words. You could say there's this mystery novel and it turns out that four words later, somebody who knew nothing else about the story would be able to go, oh, wow, that's really clever. And you understand the entire And you understand revolution. the concept. And same with Roger Ackroyd. Four mm. words later, you get the concept. Now, there aren't many of those concepts that are so simple and so obvious and yet unguessable. There just aren't many. So I had this idea and I thought, this is the best idea I've ever had. This is probably the best idea I will ever have. And the bit that I can't prove, but I, I just knew that if Agatha Christie had thought of that idea, she would have totally written a story based on that idea. Because it's it just felt so Agatha-ish, that thing that's so obvious, but you just don't see it. Uh, and I don't normally have ideas like that. I normally have slightly more complicated ideas which need about 20 words to explain how clever they are, hmm. not not four words. So, uh, so I was very enthused about that. And then I worked backwards to the opening mystery in which the chapter one, Lady Playford instructs her lawyer to change her will and to leave everything to her secretary who's due to die of an illness in three weeks' time. And the lawyer says, but if he's going to die why are you leaving him anything because he won't be around to make use of his inheritance by the time you die and Lady Playford says aha you know that's for you to find out sort of thing um, and I was very pleased with that beginning as well even though it wasn't the first idea for the book I was pleased when I worked my way back to that because it's another thing Agatha did all the time she would start with a mystery that's really quite surreal and this is something that you never hear said about Agatha you hear people say she's a brilliant plotter that it, she's all about creating great puzzles. Um, then people say lots of things about her which are in fact incorrect, like that her characters are two-dimensional, which they aren't, but you know, that's just people being silly. But I've never heard anyone say that she is a deeply surreal writer, and she really is. Her books often start with a mystery that's not so much here's a dead body who killed the dead body, but something so weird is happening. Like, you know, there's an advertisement in the paper saying a murder is announced come to such and such a house at 6.30 this evening and you'll see a murder. And then all the villagers read this and go, well, I guess we'd better go and, you know, watch this murder. And even the woman whose house it is says, oh, well, I guess we'd better lay on some tea and scones <laughs> because people are going to come to see this murder. I wonder if it will actually happen. And that's so bizarre. And I think that's, what, that's how Agatha Christie manages to be so suspenseful. Because she's not just saying, here's a murder, which we all know about murders. We all know murders happen. And even though we don't know exactly who or why, chances are it's somebody who didn't like the person very much. You know, it's not like that 
wow, what could possibly be going on? And that's what Agatha did so well. And so that's what I've tried to do in both of my quarrels, to start with a premise that's just really unusual so that readers just have to find out what on earth could be going on. And I did, I did that in Monogram Murders as well. That starts, although again, the idea I had for that book was the solution. I worked back to a first chapter in which a woman is terrified she's about to be murdered. She knows she's going to be murdered. Poirot offers to help her. And then she looks even more frightened and she says, no, promise me that when I'm murdered, you will not solve the mystery. My death must go unpunished. And uh, obviously Poirot isn't in the business of not solving murders, so he ignores her. But um, but again, you know, it's sort of like, why would somebody want their murderer to get away with it? Um, so that that was quite an important aspect of it for me to sort of that that's what I mean by writing Agatha-ish books without copying her style. Mm-hmm. And to me, that sort of weird surreal premise where the reader's thinking, "What on earth could possibly explain this?" That's a very essential ingredient of a Christie-ish book. It's like almost to an extent um, that it's not you know just giving you a clear mystery from the beginning. You're almost you spend at least you know, the first part of the book wondering, "Wait, what even?" Is the mm. mystery? Yes, to exactly. Extent. Yeah. Speaking of Agatha, um, curious. What what was your favorite Agatha Christie, and why? Oh, I have so many favorites. One of my favorites is the Body in the Library, which is a very good Miss Marple, because it's the first one I ever read, and I got really hooked on Agatha via that book. But also, I've reread it recently, and it is a completely flawless book. Um, and although. Well, it's probably not the best. I mean, I think Murder on the Orient Express, uh, Lord Edgware Dies, Sleeping Murder, Murder at the Vicarage, they're all probably better novels and better crime novels. But Body in the Library is just completely perfect in its construction. Um, and it's quite short and easy to read, even by Agatha's standards. And it, it's always one that I've particularly been keen on. But I love lots of them. I love Towards Zero. Uh, which is a standalone, it hasn't got Poirot or Miss Marple in it. I love Sparkling Cyanide, that's a really brilliant one. And then there were None, obviously, which is probably her masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I have a sort of roving top ten, <laughs> which usually contains most of the ones I've just said. Mm-hmm. Now, one more question um, that we do ask all of our guests. Uh, since this podcast is primarily for instructors, teachers, professors... Who was your favourite teacher? Oh, yes. Okay, well, before I tell you that, since this is for teachers, I'm going to also say that I think Agatha Christie is such a brilliant writer to teach children. My son, who claims to hate reading, and I tried to interest him in reading by buying him books about his interests. I bought him football books and computer gamey books and skateboarding books, and he just kept saying... No, these aren't very good, these aren't very interesting. And I thought, right, well, since he refuses to enjoy a book, he can jolly well read what I think he should read. So I gave him a... Actually, no, I gave him closed casket, first of all. And I noticed that he seemed to be quite interested. And I thought, surely not. Why would he reject books about his interests and enjoy a murder mystery set in 1929? Uh, so I said, you're enjoying that, aren't you? He said, no. I said, no, you are. <laughs> I know I'm your mum and you want to offend me, but just honestly tell me, are you? And he said, well, I'm not exactly enjoying it because I don't like books, but I feel as though it's a challenge that I, you know, I want to work out. 
who's committed the murder and why and so I'm looking for clues and so he kind of approached it like a like a challenge that where he could succeed or fail and all the way through he'd say to me I think so and so did it and he'd have a reason why and then two days later he'd say I've changed my mind I now think so and he really applied himself so when he finished reading it and he didn't guess um, I said right now you're going to read one of Agatha's he's like oh no no I said look you like mysteries you may not be willing to admit it uh, so I gave him Peril at End House and again while insisting he didn't like it he was quite invested in trying to work out what was going on and it just made me think you know for teenagers especially sort of 12 13 year olds Agatha Christie is just the best writer to kind of show them about how stories are constructed to show them that books needn't be scary and intimidating um, so I personally think that Agatha Christie should be taught in every school to teenagers um, so if any teachers are listening to this start teaching Agatha Christie immediately <laughs> right sorry what was the question you asked me who, who was your favorite teacher <laughs> my favorite teacher was a teacher I had when I was about eight I think I was in I was still in primary school so I was either eight or nine and she was a very kind of slightly scary woman called Dorothy Dearden and she looked exactly like you'd expect a Dorothy <laughs> Dearden to look you know she was kind of you know big and battle axe like and, and you know she had a very severe haircut and really severe frames on her glasses and she wasn't jolly or cuddly at all but she just loved literature and every day she made us memorize a poem by heart and she made us write a poem um, and others of my classmates hated this but I absolutely loved it because I loved poetry and I used to really look forward to writing my poem every day and memorizing the poem and she was just a brilliant teacher who, who instilled in us a sense of literature being just the best thing and because she was a very no-nonsense person it didn't occur to me anyway to doubt that. By contrast, the following year, I had a teacher who was not as nice as Mrs. Dearden, and she didn't do much creative writing with us, but then one day she came in and said, right, there's a national poetry competition for children, and I'd like you all to write poems and we'll enter them all. And I thought, oh, brilliant, at last we're doing something creative. So I tried really hard, put loads of effort in, and wrote this poem which was kind of really embarrassing and bad but I was only like nine or something and it rhymed and scanned really well so it was kind of you know like when a kid does a really fake they kind of write a poem that they think a grown-up would write so it had lots of these and thous and oh oh the plains of midnight you know really pretentious <laughs> stuff but prosodically in terms of the, the line structure and the verse forms it was very sophisticated because I read a lot of poetry anyway uh, the teacher refused to enter my poem. It was only one. She said, there's no way you've written that at your age. You've copied it from somewhere. Which I was outraged by because I literally hadn't copied it. It was all my own work. But looking back, it showed that any adult looking at that poem would have known it was a very pretentious, precocious child <laughs> of age nine. You know, no adult could have written it. So my mum and dad had to come into school and assure the teacher that I haven't copied it. And even then she wouldn't accept it. And she said, right, I'm not entering this poem. If Sophie wants to enter the competition, she can write another poem under exam conditions with me watching her. And I said, right, bring it on. <laughs> uh, and so I did. And I wrote another poem, which was equally dreadful, but the same level of 
prosodic skill and then she had to uh, admit that I hadn't copied it and she entered it. It didn't win but I never forgot that because I thought you know wow I really tried hard to write the best poem I could and she penalised me by not allowing it in the competition. Uh, so I won't name her because I still haven't forgiven her but no <laughs> Mrs Dearden would not have done that. She would have entered my poem. Yeah. Do you still remember the poem at all? Um the first line was remember when the sea was blue it was about the, the theme was memories and my poem was from the point of view of someone obviously there'd been some kind of dystopian event and then the whole world was ruined um, so the first line was remember when the sea was blue I think the second line was the beauteous waves rushed to the shore blah 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 and then the last line was it all has changed in many ways after a description of the horrific devastation that there is now. It was. It was. You know, it was not bad for a nine-year-old. Yeah, it's very, very sophisticated. Very yeah. deep. But I mean, you know, I just sort of. I can remember even at age eight or nine thinking, how could she say I've copied it when a I didn't and b she can't possibly have any proof that I did. So it's just her word against mine and my parents who were like, you know, actually took the trouble to come into school and go, she's written loads of poems like this. I mean, I had books full. I used to write them in exam script books that my dad gave me because he was an academic and uh, all his students did their exams on these kind of white lined booklets with like string down the middle and my dad used to bring me those back and I would write my poems and then I had all these books with little illustrations you know I really was a very strange and precocious child <laughs> and I think my parents actually brought some of those books in as evidence but this woman just wouldn't accept it so yes, that's still a major grudge in my arsenal of grudges to be held forever. <laughs> well, perhaps you can base a character off of her later. Yes, <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lovely chat. Yeah, it's been good fun. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.